1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brinkinridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. 403-974-8255 is her number. So uh, turning our attention to this really fascinating research out of the University of Toronto, a study published recently detailing these findings and what neuroscientists there were able to do which is essentially to look at someone's brain or images of brain activity and know what's being visualized by that person. So essentially, you could call that mind reading, not in maybe the way we've come to understand the term, but being able to look at somebody's mind and, yes, know what they're thinking. And so that's got some pretty big implications. Uh, This involves uh, hooking subjects up to an EEG, having them stare at uh, an image of a face uh, for a period of time, and then being able to recreate that facial image based on the EEG data. It is quite fascinating. Join us uh, to talk more about it, one of the uh, researchers involved, Dr. Adrian Nestor. is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Professor Nestor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program a bit of an overview then of uh, the kind of research you're doing and and what we're able to to gather about how people's brains are functioning based on this EEG data.
0: Of course, um, the fundamental question we were trying to answer is um, what is the actual percept that you experience when, uh, whenever you look at a face uh, or an object? Um, and the way to do that um, would be by um, recording the pattern of neural activation associated with you viewing such a, uh, an image, let's say, of a face, and then try to reconstruct um, the appearance of that um, stimulus as experienced by, uh, by you, assuming you are the uh, participant in that study. And uh, that's precisely what we managed to do here using um, EEG, electroencephalography. It's something that in the past has been done with um, fMRI, with functional magnetic resonance imaging, but EEG has specific advantages that make it um, a lot more suitable for applied research. Well,
1: and I mean I, I from what I understand that that we've seen in previous research that when when people are thinking about certain things or doing certain things that 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 triggers activity in different parts of the brain but this is going much further because you're almost able to see what the person is seeing.
0: Uh that is correct. Um a lot of neuroimaging tools are um, much better suited to um, uh, answer questions about where relevant signals are coming from, what what region of the brain, um, e.g. cannot do that very well. So we don't really have a very good understanding where the signal comes from. But what we can look into is what precisely we can uh, we can do with that signal. Um, what can we reconstruct based upon that signal? And um, because of that, EEG um, research has been focused on the, on, in the past on um, rather simpler aspects of um, visual recognition. Um, are you looking at the face or are you looking at uh, at the car? Are you looking at somebody familiar or somebody unfamiliar? Um, and now we show that uh, we're in a position to do quite a bit more using EEG, um, not just trying to make categorical decisions such as this, but actually reconstruct a... a, a relatively accurate um, mental um, representation of what it is that you experience when you look at, a, at an image of a face.
1: And by the way, now, there, some of this research has involved MRIs. This uses EEG. What, what's, what's the difference between the two?
0: Uh, they're both fantastic tools, but um, they have uh, different sets of Strengths and weaknesses. Um, FMRI is fantastic if the question you are attempting to answer is what uh, part of the brain is responsible for a particular type of uh, process, right? Let's say a perceptual process, looking at faces. Um, EEG cannot do that, but it's got a much better temporal resolution. It processes information and it delivers information uh, practically millisecond by millisecond, as opposed to uh, fMRI, which has a um, second by second uh, temporal resolution. Um, However, I would say that the main advantage to using EEG here is that The fact that EEG systems are so widely available uh, around the world because they're also much cheaper, much more affordable, and they're also portable, which makes them ideal for the purpose of uh, uh, doing research in the field, not just in a a science lab.
1: So in this study and and the images you were able to recreate, some of them are incredibly accurate. Uh, were,
0: Were you surprised by some of this? Um, This is a proof of concept. Um, We were very much surprised to see that um, this is possible in the first place. And uh, we're also quite surprised to see that um, especially some of our participants uh, uh, provided um, data for um, reconstructions which were so successful. Uh, Having said that, I think there's a great deal of, done to boost the accuracy even further and to understand exactly why the data from uh, some participants is much better than the data of others. And this has wide implications for the uh, um, ability to generalize um, and to transform this into a uh, um, general system for um, uh, practical applications. Well, and what might those be? Uh, One particular set of applications which might be relevant here uh, concern um, neuroforensics, and that's a relatively new field. Uh, It involves using um, neuroimaging data, for instance, uh, for um, uh, forensic inquiries. As a specific example, uh, what we could do possibly in the future is um, reconstruct images not just from perception but from memory and, um, let's say, uh, attempt to recreate the facial appearance of a person of interest, of a suspect, um, from the memory of an eyewitness. Another question would um, would concern clinical um, of of this research. For instance, um, allowing um, somebody who's unable to communicate through verbal means or through um, any other means, uh, behavioral means, um, simply by recreating uh, via... um, Recordings of uh, neural activations, experiences, visual experiences, um, such as whatever um, they saw, or um, even verbal stimuli. For instance, uh, a participant trying to communicate the word "help" um, via simply imagining such uh, such a word.
1: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's enormous, right? I mean, there's there's some incredible potential here.
0: It's uh, it's incredible potential, but um, there's also an incredible set of challenges that um, many labs um, will have to solve over the next couple of um, years. So, however, I hope that um, the prospects of this research uh, make uh, make all the effort uh, worthwhile. Right, and
1: so this study involves people who are are looking at images, and and you're reviewing the data as it's as it's happening in real time. Is it is it conceivable that you you could use this data to 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 recreate an image that somebody looked at yesterday or an image that somebody's imagining in their mind?
0: Um, that is precisely the question that we are trying to answer to now. Um, and what we expect is that um, there will be wide differences across um, across individuals. Um, some people might be much better at imagining things uh, with a lot of visual detail and in a much more stable fashion than um, than in the case of other individuals. So again, the wide applicability and the ability to to generalize across a wider population is something that we will have to look into. Also, we need to keep in mind that the fact that memory, uh, as well as perception, is not a perfect copy of reality. What you perceive, what you remember is is colored by very different biases, by background, by what you pay attention to. So those are things that we also have to very carefully look into.
1: All right. Uh, this has also sparked quite a conversation about privacy rights, uh, ethical questions around this, this kind of research. How do we need to, to move forward with
0: all of that in mind? Um, those are very relevant questions, and those are timely questions, because um, neurotechnology uh, is moving very uh, very quickly, and it's only bound to, to move even at a faster pace uh, from now on. Um, so then it is incumbent upon us to, to attempt to develop the right ethical um, framework um, to accompany and to guide this kind of um, research in the future.
1: Was well, it's quite fascinating. Uh, we'll leave it there, Professor Nestor. Thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. There you go. That's uh, Dr. Adrian Nestor, assistant professor of the Department of Psychology, University of Toronto, co-authored this study. Right? It's fascinating. It's a little frightening at, at some level. And I suppose as uh, scientists get better at doing this, we're going to have to address some of those, those ethical and, and privacy questions. Nine seven four eight two five five is a number. We are back with more right after this.